0: Welcome to the "Don't Get Hurt Twice" podcast. My name is Jay Chad Parker. I'm a personal injury lawyer. I'm board certified in personal injury trial law. Uh, I've done many of these podcasts over the last several months, and we attempt to uh, do topics that are helpful to the listener and the listener uh, and the audience that we're speaking to, or the people uh, that may be hurt in a car wreck may need to seek legal advice. Uh, may have questions about the process that they're involved in and and when to end it or when to extend it, if you will. Today, I thought what we'd talk about is what's a good settlement uh, for the case that you have, Um, and I want to break that down a little bit. A good settlement uh, is a reasonable expectation for the case you have is the case that you actually have. How bad was the wreck? how how long were you hurt? How serious were you hurt? You have to consider those things. Uh, some people think um, that somehow there's a matrix, there's a formula, if you will, for, hey, what are these things worth? And uh, my brother-in-law told me that he got $100,000 four years ago on something similar like this. And of course, uh, I, all, I hear things like that all the time. And, 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 I, and I listen to it with a lot of skepticism because there are so many variables that come together to make a settlement. For, and we're going to talk about many of those today. And, you know, uh, the relationship with your lawyer should be a partnership. That is a partnership based on trust at its foundation. That is, you're going to trust that I know what I'm doing. You're going to trust that I'm going to tell you the truth. You and I both know that financially, we are connected at the hip. The more money I make, the more money you get. So I have no incentive. If you trust me that I'm a competent trial lawyer, I'm not afraid to go to trial. I'll go to trial when it needs to happen, but I'll also tell you to stop and settle at a time that I think it's most advantageous to you. Because remember, as a case goes along, Case expenses are being acquired now. Case expenses come off of your part, not mine or the lawyers. And so, there's this sweet spot, if you will, for every case where a lawyer should say this is a good time to settlement and a good settlement if one presents itself. Sometimes, over the past several years, different insurance companies, Allstate, State Farm, uh, companies such as these, have been very difficult. Uh, And in my opinion, extremely unreasonable with um, settlement offers. And and that's caused the process to go longer, more trials to have to take place. uh, But that's their prerogative. Remember, a settlement is a voluntary payment from an insurance company. Now, how, how is that voluntary payment made? Well, usually insurance companies only respond to risk. That is, if they're scared or if they think, hey, I could end up paying more then that's when they generally respond. And so let's talk about, you know, what should be considered at each stage of the process, okay? The first, I'm going to start at the very beginning, and this is where people uh, get hurt twice. An accident happens, and yes, insurance companies are lightning fast these days. They'll have you on the phone the day after the accident. Hey, can we take a recorded statement? And, and, you know, you're thinking they're here to help me. Okay. That is the wrong mindset. Okay. No, they're here to settle. The settlement process starts right then for you, even though you don't know it, they'll use your car. Like, you know, Hey, can we get my car fixed? Can I get into a rental? Oh, sure we can. Sure. We can. Um, what about how you feeling now? Remember, in other podcasts, I have said you don't know the full effects of your injuries for sometimes 28 to 48 hours. They know this as well. That's why they're talking to you the day after the accident because some of the questions that they ask over a recorded statement will be, um, "Do you have any injuries? Uh, are you going to be opening a bodily injury claim?" You have no idea. You say things like, "No, I don't know." Of course, this is recorded to be used against you later. Now. People who need the money, don't appreciate what has happened, may get an offer made to them, hey, we'll give you $2,000. Well, you've got to be careful. Why? Under Texas law, an emergency room visit, the hospital, they they have a property lien. That is, the Texas property code gives them an automatic lien. So if an insurance company offers you money and they're not talking about that emergency room bill, then yes. You might get $2,000, but yes, you might also have a bill for $8,000, which was created by your evaluation at the emergency room that you're left to deal with. And so under very, very, very few circumstances is the settlement within the first couple of days after an accident, uh, anything I would ever recommend. I think there's actually statistics on this, that people that get lawyers generally end up with better settlements. So let's just Let's take that as a general truth and go from there. All right. What affects settlements? Well, the talking points of the insurance company are how they resolve many of these cases. And one of the biggest ones that they used is called a gap in treatment. Like, well, we see you went to the emergency room, but you didn't go to anywhere for a month. Now, that's called a gap in treatment in their mind. It doesn't mean you weren't hurting the entire time. But it's certainly going to affect your settlement position. And it's not anything that me, J. Chad Parker, your lawyer, can do about it because I can't change those facts. You have no medical records. You have no documentation of any complaints of pain in that one month period of time. They're going to suggest I sent you to the physical therapist anyway. OK, and so this single adjuster for this different insurance company has this negative view of your case. Now, how could it be any different? Well, you come to me, you come to a lawyer, you talk to him. you tell them how you feel, what problems you have. You may have health insurance, you may have not have health insurance. You start treating if that's what you need. Then you keep that gap in treatment to a very minimum. You take away the argument, okay? You end up with a certain amount of medical bills. And if that's the end of it, that's the end of it. That's your case. Your case is not... Um, going to break the bank you're not going to win the lottery um some people joke about there being a courthouse lottery but in smith county anybody who's practiced law there can tell you that's absolutely not true um so you have to be realistic i can only work with what you have to work with okay and if you're only so hurt and you're well or you've recovered in a month and a half that's your case all right. Now, who would you rather have represent you? Someone who'll tell you the truth from the beginning or tell you the truth at the end. And what I mean by that is if somebody gives you a false sense of hope, if they don't tell you the truth until it's the end and they say, hey, I'm sorry, you're only going to get $250. It's my, my pay, my fee, the rest of the meds, And your case was never worth much to begin with. You're going to say, well, hey, why didn't you tell me that from the beginning? So setting expectation, telling the truth, straight talk, as I say it, is what you deserve. That's what my clients get. Why? I don't want people upset at the end, misunderstanding what they had and what they didn't have. And so I'm trying to be very clear. One, I don't know what it's worth yet, which people ask all the time. Mr. Parker, what do you think this case is worth? And it depends on when they ask me that question. And most of the time I can say, well, look, I can't possibly tell you that right now. You're still trading. And so um, those questions, I understand why people, they kind of want to know. And I think people budget for other things in their mind that might happen if they get a settlement. But it's really um, it's really not credible for any lawyer to tell you at the front end, hey, your case is worth this, unless it was something like... You have a $100,000 hospital bill, and the person that hits you only has 30000 insurance. In that circumstance, yes, they might say, hey, I think we're going to get the policy limits. Now, I've seen some commercials run in East Texas, which I think are absolutely um, you know, borderline fraudulent, a miscarriage of what lawyers even have the capability of doing. I've seen commercials run that says, want to know what your case is worth? Call us. Now, that goes back to what we just talked about. That's not truthful. There is absolutely no way a lawyer can tell you, one, after you've been to the emergency room and nowhere else, what's your case worth. They're trying to get that case. Most of the time, if you see that type of commercial, look in the fine print. See where those people are from. See if you really think, that you would ever speak to them on the telephone or they would have your best interest in mind. People that will not tell the truth or over-exaggerate to get the case are not the kind of lawyers that you want. If you want somebody to tell you the truth and be straight with you, uh, then there's no way. They should say, I can't tell you right now what it's worth. Now, the further along the case goes, the more it's understood about your injuries, the treatment you've received, how well you've recovered, whether you need to see a specialist, the picture gets clearer, but certainly at the front end, it's not very clear. Um, lawyers don't have a crystal ball. I mean, yes, I've done this almost 30 years. Yes, I've evaluated thousands and thousands of cases from the defense side, which gives me a unique perspective on evaluating your case. I have, you know, settled. Thousands of cases on behalf of plaintiffs, and so I also have that perspective, and so I have kind of a combined perspective that makes me—I wouldn't call it an expert—but it, it gives me a basis for my opinion that at each stage of the game, uh, you're—you know—we're working towards what your case might be worth. Now, how does that, um, h- how does that work itself out? Well, ultimately, when you're through treating, your lost wages are known if you have them, and we have the full quote damage model that we're going to present to the insurance company, we usually, I do it in a demand. And so the demand will pick the number that we'll initially start with. Uh, and in my office, I write all of my own demands and I do that for a simple reason. I read all the medical records. Um, I want to know what kind of case my client has because I may see things in it that my staff may not understand to be important. For instance, I could see an unresolved injury that's not being treated and say, hey, we need to call, you know, John on the phone and make sure that his knee, his shoulder, his something else is not, it's been fully evaluated and he understands this settlement means there's no more money for what has happened to him in this case. Now, limiting factors to that include uh what everybody knows uh as policy limits. Some of my other podcasts have talked about, you know, you have the limits that the person has that caused the accident, and then they have your limits, that is, underinsured or uninsured motorists, if you carry it. Sometimes uh, those limits are small and that limits the possibilities of the case. Some people are surprised to know that there's not this, you know, universal arbiter, fundamental fairness. Insurance for everybody, no matter what happens to you. It's not that way at all. And that's part of the evaluation. Your lawyer should be smart. That is, depending on what treatment um, that you need or, or can get approved, it may be affected by the amount of insurance that's available. Because let me tell you another scenario that you have to watch out for, and it involves settlement and it involves you not getting hurt twice. Like we talked about earlier. I get my fee off the total recovery, as does every lawyer. You are most important, or, 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 or most interested in, and is most important for you. What net are you going to get? That is, after I'm paid, the expenses are paid, uh, and the medical bills are paid. What's left over for you? That's that's an issue that some lawyers look over. Why? You can keep treating keep building your medical expenses, and ultimately, the lawyer maxes out on the available limits at whatever percentage they're representing you under. Um, But that could mean nothing. Another scenario could be you didn't have as much medical, the lawyer's demand was more effective, he had a better reputation, was a good negotiator, you got the same limits with less medical to pay back, and you ended up with a better net, which is what most people that I talk to, that is my clients, are interested in. And so that's something to consider. The, you know, the Monday morning settlement coordinators, I call them, that is um, clients that start to talk to me about a recovery from uh, a person they know years ago uh, with another lawyer under a set of circumstances. It's just, you know, that's kind of a red flag for me that maybe I need to communicate with them more. Maybe they don't trust and understand me as well as, as, as I should have communicated early on. And because I, when I meet with my clients and talk to them, I always communicate, look, it's an insurance company philosophy at the time. And believe me, the companies that you see on television advertising, they change company philosophy as time goes on. Some of them decide to pay claims more and they pay more. They spend less on their lawyers. Sometimes they move into phases where they pay their lawyers more, and they fight the claims more, and they pay you less or try to. So the insurance company matters. The individual adjuster, uh, just like anybody, has different um, you know, personalities, uh, different uh, level of education, different level of skill. There's also things internally with insurance companies and quotas for the month and things that they might want to settle this one and not want to settle this one. So there's many things um, that could affect uh, your ability to settle. And that's why I mentioned earlier, there's things to consider throughout each stage of the process. Just because you draw a bad adjuster, bad insurance company and a low offer doesn't mean you're stuck. Look, in the cases that I, um, I handle for my clients, uh, I send out a demand, like I told you, and I try to write a demand. That's very specific and very convincing as to what the case is today and what it would be in the future. The long view, if you will. Like, hey, isn't it silly to fight? If this is what it is and this is what it's going to be in a year from now when we get to the courthouse, you know, why shouldn't, you know, common sense prevail and we come together? And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, A decision has to be made to file a lawsuit. And sometimes a lawsuit gets filed. What it does is it draws another adjuster, a second set of eyes, somebody with more experience in litigation when lawsuits have been filed. And sometimes they come back to me and say, yeah, we were a little low and and the settlement number changes. And so uh, there again, that's an example where the case value offered by the insurance company before litigation could be substantially less than it was the day after I filed the lawsuit and they received it. My point being the question that you ask, what is my case worth? Well, at what stage and under what circumstances are we talking about? Under that circumstance, the adjuster had no incentive to settle for whatever reason, but once we filed the lawsuit, we had a dramatically better offer. Now, had you been frustrated with me or the process by the low offer pre-litigation? I mean, I understand your frustration, but as you can see, it's not, it's not a question of what I could, could and could not do. It's one of the, uh, the factors and circumstances that we encountered along the way. Now, where does skill and expertise uh, and experience from a lawyer come in? It comes in in, in the decision-making process that we're talking about right now like know when to hold them, know when to fold them, right? Obviously, under the 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 experience or the example I just gave, we didn't fold. We filed a lawsuit. We got a better offer. It may be good enough to where the client says, and you say, hey, that's good enough. I want this all behind me. I may say, hey, it's my personal opinion that if we keep going, and, and go to a mediation that we're likely going to have a better result because I still think they're low on values, values that I have in my head from the experiences of thousands settled with different variations of what happened to you. Now, people that trust me, people that uh, you know partner up with me are, are some of the best clients I've ever had. is Is there like Mr. Parker, uh, I'm just going to do what you say and and that's not weakness on their part. That's someone who's taking uh, the fact that uh, I've got a level of experience uh, in this area and a perspective from the defense and the plaintiff side that, that really very few have. And, uh, and so that's how we proceed along the settlement process. Now, I mentioned the demand letter earlier, and I want to go back to this just a little bit more. As a defense lawyer, the things that I saw and learned shaped who I wanted to become and who I became as a plaintiff 's attorney, um, i can 't tell you how many letters single letters on a letterhead that I had seen with one paragraph that just simply in so many words demanded either a number that was high or the policy limits which weren't specified. Now, how serious do you think insurance adjusters take uh a demand like that from a lawyer like that, or in many instances, paralegals or legal staff and secretaries who actually prepare those type of demands. They're not very convincing. They wouldn't convince you. Many of the demands that I write incorporate all facets of the case. If there's photographs of the property damage, they're in there. I mean, why? You are countering these invisible arguments that the insurance company is making when they're looking like, oh, I don't see very much property damage. Well, oh, there it is. Yes, you do. Okay. Well, I'm not sure whose fault it is. Well, there's a witness. His name is this. He was listed under the police report. There's no question what the accident was and who caused it. Sometimes the accident itself suggests distraction, which we all know is likely a cell phone being looked at or utilized because somebody did something that's really unexplainable and causes an accident. And I point that out because I think that uh, insurance companies are acknowledging that the, the public is becoming more and more aggravated, and settlement values actually will rise to the level that this is pointed out. Um, it's it's a perfect. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. I settled a case on um, Wednesday. Today's Friday. On Wednesday, the opening offer was $78,000 and some change. Now, this was a lady, a a great lady. And this incorporates a lot of things that I think add to value for settlements, okay? She had a lengthy criminal history and lengthy drug problem and was in prison. Now, wait a minute. You're, You're about to tell me this doesn't sound good for her, right? That's right, except for what I'm about to say. Everybody loves a comeback story. And that's what she was. She was raised by druggy parents at a very young age and became drug addicted herself. She was clean for five years when this accident happened. That's what I'm saying. Everybody loves a comeback story. Very articulate, very smart. And it was clear if she'd ever had a real chance, she would have done something. She was working at Sanderson Farms. That is the chicken plant. Freezing cold inside, standing up all day. She's going to work. It's about 5.50 in the morning. Head-on collision. At night, it's dark. In her lane of travel, we get the DPS stuff. And, of course, the person who calls this is remarkably not really injured. Now, he has to be cut out of the car. But immediately, he's smart. He starts telling everybody he fell asleep, right? Because I deposed the DPS trooper in this case. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, if people fall asleep, is it? he goes, no. He said, criminally, really? Really? It's the, it's the, it's the mental intent, the mens rea. There's really no criminal intent with falling asleep, but I had always suspected that this guy was on the cell phone and you sure wouldn't want to tell a DPS trooper that you were on the phone when this lady's car was upside down, down the ditch, and you weren't sure she was alive. So he did what I thought he, he would do. He said that, and we saw it. We got the DPS troopers body cam. And he was telling other witnesses, other people were walking up. Yeah, he said he fell asleep. And he's just trapped in the car, but he's, he's awake. So what do we do? Uh, I get a cell phone expert. We get the phone, okay? Because we ordered the uh, records first, you know, the provider, the cell phone number. And there's, there's no calls. There's no SMS, no text messages. Now, when you do a cell phone forensic, you know, deep dive, you find all kinds of stuff. I mean, user-initiated activity being the key phrase. And we, what we found was after he testified that he hadn't touched his phone in the hour that preceded this accident, we found quite a bit of user-initiated activity leading up to the time of the accident. And so I mediated this case, okay, after all this became known along the way. Now, realizing my client had a shoulder surgery, because you can imagine – what your left shoulder could have done to it in a head-on collision with a shoulder harness on. And and that's exactly what happened to her. And so she couldn't even work. It was already hard on her. She had $10,000 in lost wages because she hadn't been able to work. And so ultimately they paid me almost four times the initial offer. Okay. And let that sink in. The first offer reflected essentially her past medical expenses. And there's no way I could have told her, Mr. Parker, what's my case worth? These lawyers that are running commercials saying that they're not telling the truth. I couldn't have told her. I said, well, I don't know. Is this shoulder hurt? Does it need a surgery? Is it going to get better? Are we going to find out this guy was on the cell phone or did he really fall asleep? These are things that have to play themselves out. And lawyers that have the the experience to go find this information and then know how to use it, add value to the cases. So if somebody tells you your case is worth X dollars, I'd be willing to bet that that estimation was low and probably lower than someone else who thoroughly worked it up uh, and investigated the different things that add value to cases. Obviously, drunk driving, cell phone use on the phone. Those are things that add va- value because they know juries would be aggravated and that aggravation would be reflected in the awards. So the demand letter uh, not only lays out the liability, as I just I just said, um, and, and, and I didn't know all these facts, um, and I laid that demand out as if it was just falling asleep. And of course, you know, you shouldn't fall asleep. I mean, you know, you should be able to Uh, you know, either not drive or pull over or do something else. But in any event, you know, the better your lawyer knows the medicine. And that's another thing. You know, how intelligent is the lawyer you're hiring? How experienced are they in uh, what I call medical legal terminology? That is, you know, the the glossary of terms, the understanding of how the neck and the back work, the shoulders, the knees, um, the elbows, the ankles, the things that get hurt in a car wreck, because believe me, the insurance adjusters are reading back to my criticism of the one paragraph demand. They get a one paragraph demand. They look at that. They see there's no technical skill. There's no thought process put into this demand. They know this person is not serious. Now, if that's true about your lawyer, what do you think or how do you think that will be reflected? It'll be reflected in the offer. What's the opening offer? What's the ultimate offer? As opposed to a demand that's thoroughly thoroughly laid out, the strong points about liability, if if you need to point those out, plus the damages and any potential damage that might uh, stem from this injury that will be addressed later uh, through a surgery or other injections or follow up visits. You know, again, earlier when I said, My demands is the, here's what we have now, and here's the long view. The good lawyer knows how to point out the things that are likely medically probable to happen along the way that will, in the end, be part of the long view. Now, that can get cases settled. That can get to different layers of policy limits, whether it be to a 30, to a 50, to a 100. Those type of things can cause insurance companies to say, We've got more risk here. We're going to have to pay a lawyer and and this might turn out uh, badly for us. And so that's ultimately what you're trying to do when a settlement demand is made to what? To get them to make a voluntary payment based on their perception of your case. The perception is created by the facts of the case, as well as the creativity and the experience of your lawyer. And that's what's presented on your behalf uh, for what becomes your initial settlement offer and the insurance company's first impression of your case. I know everybody's heard this before first impressions are hard to change. If your lawyer hasn't done a very good job and your case appears to not be very good, it's difficult to write to, to that ship or change that first impression unless you know, they've clearly left something out or hasn't done something else that could affect the value of the case. And I've told this story before. Um, and and it's a tangible example of two demands and two offers. A guy called me one time and, um, he said he wanted to fire his lawyer, and I said, "I said, well, what, 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 what's the problem? He said, well, I got an offer, and I said, well, you got an offer? What's the offer? And he said, 300000 I said, well, you need to keep him. I mean, y'all are almost home, it sounds like. I didn't know anything about the case, but certainly I'm not the kind of lawyer who says, yeah, fire him, come get me, especially under that circumstance, which other lawyers will do it in a heartbeat. So I said, just stay with him, man. I mean, he's gotten you this far. So two months pass. He calls me up and he says, I fired him. Okay. And I said, you fired him. I mean, what happened? Well, he said, he said, he thought that's all we could get. And I said, okay, well, bring me the file. So he brought me his file, which included, guess what? The demand from the other lawyer, which was in fact, no more than a page long. He also brought me his medical bills and his medical records, which I had a chance to read, digest and formulate my own opinions as to what the doctors were saying and what they weren't saying all I did was write a new demand through the perspective my perspective of what I thought the case was for him medically now and into the future I got an opening offer from them about 475 and ultimately settled the case for 525 now I'm not suggesting that I'm great I'm pointing this out as an example of how two demands can shape two perspectives of a same, of a same set of facts. Now, it must be said that a lawyer's reputation, experience, um, Google reviews, whatever you want to talk about, are also factored into the insurance company's respect for the lawyer, uh, which, are, which is usually reflected. Uh, in the offers made to the lawyer. So what I'm saying is not only a good lawyer with a good set of facts uh, gets you or could get you a decent offer, uh, but a good lawyer may get you a little bit more respect and a little bit better uh, offer. Um, Now, look, most cases aren't tried. So it's like, you know, the threat of trial really is only out there You know, in certain cases, in most cases, most people understand lawyers, adjusters, that they're going to settle. It's just a matter of for what. I mean, for you, it's important. 5,000 more here, 20,000 more there. That's important to you because that generally affects your net. Um, The perspective we've talked about, which is the lawyer shaping it, um, your understanding of what's reasonable and possible and even a potential, all revolves around the lawyer's ability to communicate. That is, I'm trying to communicate with you in this podcast. If I'm doing a good job, you understand what I'm saying. You are determining whether I'm credible by the things I say with the things you test against what you've experienced in real life. Now, if you go to hire a lawyer and you don't hear anything that seems credible, realistic, or even has a hint of any straight talk that you have some responsibility in this, then I suggest you may be sadly disappointed because you do have responsibility. And this is a, a topic for another podcast. How you approach your medical treatment, your, uh, your curiosity, your desire to find out what's wrong with you and get better uh, also can affect your settlements. And I was once told by a good friend and a mentor of mine. Chad, uh, I tell clients all the time uh, if you don't care about your case, how do you expect me to? Now, I hope today has been informative on uh, the considerations for settlement uh, through each stage of the process, uh, when it might be a good idea to settle, why sometimes things can change the numbers throughout the process and you should go a little further, um, and ultimately uh, why sometimes trial the greatest risk. To your settlement offer may or may not be a good idea sometimes. But thanks for joining us today. The whole point of this is to give you more information, more understanding, with the hopes that if you've seen this before, you're confronted with this situation, you don't get hurt twice.